of the, all of them quoting lines from the movie. <laughs> it quick cut to the girl, and she was like, "Look, look, she fell." Yeah. <laughs> I like, that, uh, I like. Is that it. the only one uh, of that? Yeah, that's that's the only reference they make to Lord. Of, well, no, they talk about Lord of the Rings a lot because they're from New Zealand. But right. I like the guy. I like the guy that says, "Do they, Gandalf?" <laughs> it's just the, it's just clearly the only part he just remembers from the movie. Hooray! Yeah, we made it. Uh, we'll never make it. Right? We made it. <laughs> That's great. Hello and welcome back to Prestige Blockbusters, our special film nerd series, taking a look at movies that made a big splash with both audiences and critics. I'm your host, Matt Scalisi, and with us once again is the guest programmer for this series, the guy who chose these movies, Ben Stark. Welcome back, Ben. Hello, thanks for having me. Um, this time we're going to take a look at uh, the film that began... Maybe one of the most decorated trilogies in Academy Award history, uh, The Lord of the Rings. And we're going to be looking at the first film in the trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, first off, it definitely exceeds our special qualifications for this series. It made $313.3 million domestically during its run. Actually went over $870 million in the worldwide box office. Um which is that's a stratosphere not many movies have ever seen, uh, and it's got a very impressive ninety-two percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So the critics, not not too many critics, have any beef with Fellowship of the Ring. So this is this is kind of a no-brainer uh, to pick a movie from the Lord of the Rings series. As we said, it's it's almost universally praised. I mean, it's all it you know it's got its detractors, but uh, this is a movie that critics loved and obviously the audiences loved. Um, Ben, tell me why you why you wanted to talk about Fellowship of the Ring specifically from the trilogy. Well, I think uh, for those reasons that you just mentioned, I think I think you you said how how kind of uh, obvious it is, and uh, I think it's it, it's the one of the best examples of this kind of kind of movie. You know, um, I remember whenever it came out, uh, I had a lot of my friends were really looking forward to it. I wasn't very familiar with with Tolkien or Lord of the Rings or anything like that. A lot of my friends were really looking forward to it, and uh, I went and saw it, and I was like, "Wow, that was a you know a big, uh, you know, big event movie that I wasn't expecting because I didn't know anything about it. I didn't really, I wasn't really, um, like I said, expecting it. But whenever it came out, I, I really liked it a lot and watched it you know a couple times in the theater, and uh, I was like, "Yeah, it's just an awesome movie. You know, it's fun to watch, and it's a it's a ride, and it's long, and you know, makes you feel good at the end, but you know, it still leaves you wanting more." And then I realized that it was getting, you know, uh, Academy Award considerations and things like that. And I was like, wow, that's that's a surprise for some reason um, because I wasn't really paying attention to Oscar-type stuff whenever Titanic was out. And I also didn't join that particular bandwagon. I didn't see Titanic until 10 years after it came out. So I, yeah, I think a lot of people attribute uh, the Lord of the Rings success to 
the success of Titanic, which you know made a lot of money, was uh, a, you know a, a special effects um, extravaganza and was nominated for lots of Oscars, exactly the same way Lord of the Rings was. Um, but that's that's the kind of the the big reason. But also for for this series, I think I think it's it's interesting because it has such these big action scenes, these big battle scenes, but it also has uh, an unusual amount of emotional, um, I guess, awareness and uh, a heightened kind of emotional uh, um, um, input more than more than most kind of adventure movies or blockbusters like this. And I think uh, I think that's really what made people hang on to it, you know. Uh, People cried in this movie. Um, the same the same year that w- one of the big, you know, the big blockbusters of two thousand one before Lord of the Rings were Planet of the Apes uh, and like Jurassic Park and The Mummy Returns. And if anybody cried in any of those movies, you know, it wasn't because of the performance or because of the writing. <laughs> that um, might have been, but but for the wrong reasons. <laughs> yeah, could have been. Uh, it could have been that they spent you know six dollars on that movie. And they're just crying over their empty wallet. Right. Uh, but you know, you know what I mean, though. That those movies didn't go for that either. I don't think any. You know, I don't think the filmmakers intended those to be emotional kind of roller coasters, the way that uh, Peter Jackson and company wanted uh, the Fellowship of the Ring to be. Um, and I think that was really interesting. And at the time, I was like, "Wow, I'm feeling more feelings <laughs> than I'm used to feeling uh, when there's big battles going on and there's big." special effects and computer graphics happening. So I think, uh, I think, I think the emotional, um, strength of the film, uh, is, is really what kind of sets it apart from the average critically, um, uh, critically awarded or, or money making movie. And, you know, there are a couple of, there are a couple of aspects, uh, in terms of who made this movie and how it got to be made that I think are, are, interesting in in how they developed the lord of the rings this huge obviously big budget epic film into being as emotionally conscious as it is um i think it all has to do with peter jackson for one i think you know a lot of the other movies you mentioned are very american productions and uh you know lord of the rings is uh, there there are americans involved in the studios were american but there's most definitely uh a lot of foreign uh, sentiment behind this movie, and you know the the filmmakers, uh, by and large, were from New Zealand. They uh, a lot of the product, not just Peter Jackson, but uh, you know a lot of the production people involved. A lot of the the sort of set design and the special effects crew. A lot of them were uh, New Zealand natives, and uh, you know I think they they brought a a very emotionally invested uh, sort of quality to this movie that a lot of American films, I think you, I think detachment is almost uh, the preferred way to be. Uh, whereas I think that's the opposite case in this film. And I think also Peter Jackson's sort of personal relationship with the source material. You know, it's been said a lot uh, that he, you know, this is a book that he read. He says, you know, once a year sometime for certain periods of his life, it's a book he was very, very familiar with and loved and that's a lot of times we actually see that have a, a a bad effect on the outcome of a movie. Sometimes a a filmmaker loves the source material so much that he sort of forgets he's trying to share certain things about it 
with uh, an audience who maybe is not familiar with the source material. But Peter Jackson really managed to, I think, uh, pull out the things that he loved the most and that he attached himself to the most from this from this book and uh, and really put it on screen. You know, for one, I guess address the what you think it brought to Lord of the Rings to have this be a non-American uh, production, and and also what you think it brought to have uh, a filmmaker who was so very intimately uh, associated with the source material. Um, I think it. I think it brought a lot to it. Um, you can you can tell he he really kind of threw himself into the into the world the, the same way Tolkien kind of threw himself into the the languages and, and creating the different worlds. Um, you can see that he 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 did the same as his co-writers uh, was it Fran Walsh and Philip Boyens. They all kind of really you can tell they love you love this world. Uh, but uh, and as far as the 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 Commonwealth influence, I guess. I think I think you bring up an interesting point that um, the American style of storytelling is a little bit more restrained. It's not as emotional. It's it's you know it's a holdover probably from the Western and film noir uh, that you know that we we still have that kind of stoic idea of, of storytelling and of, of heroes and of leads where we don't we don't show our we don't show our whole hand you know. Um, we just kind of assess the situation, and, and a lot of times uh, our films are a little bit more systematic that way. Um, I don't know why I'm saying our, since I'm not even you're you're American. American. It's okay. You're not an expatriate yeah. yet, Stark. <laughs> not yet. Uh, the uh, so yeah, I think I think there is a lot of uh, a lot more kind of gushing emotion and kind of uh, style in in the films and. And since I've watched it, maybe it's because I've become more American in the past uh, seven years. But I, there is a certain kind of melodrama and high emotion uh, to the films that, honestly, I'm kind of it, it kind of stands out a little bit more than usual. I won't say that it rubs me the wrong way or that it's I don't like it, um, but it's it's there, you know. Um, and Jackson kind of directs the movies uh, like a like Kenneth Branagh would have directed it, you know, like a really indulgent kind of everything's like a whoosh, swishing, the camera's constantly moving and the, everything's lush and saturated and soft. And it's, uh, it's, it, it suits it well for the world. Um, but often it's not, it is, it is a lot different from the American style of filmmaking where, or even, even the Hitchcock style of filmmaking, you know, where every, every beat is, uh, is is a is a piece of the overall whole, um, whereas in Lord of the Rings, a lot of the decisions are a lot more emotionally grounded. You know, like how is this going to make your belly feel when you see this uh, big sweeping tracking shot? It doesn't matter what the shot's necessarily telling you. It's how is it going to make you feel once you see it? Which uh, you know, it's just a different approach. And like I said, it works. It works for the world, and it works to make the world have uh, an emotional realism, as we talked about in other episodes, but also its own identity. You know, if if he had shot it um, like a John Cassavetes film or like a Hitchcock film where every everything is so uh, logical, it may have hurt the fantasy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I, you know, I think a good example that stands out to me in The Fellowship of the Ring... Uh, 
is the scene between uh, Aragorn and uh, I think his name is Boromir, uh, the Sean Bean character. You know his name. Don't act like you don't know all these characters' names and have like a, <laughs> have a, a phonetic enunciation book. <laughs> In Elvish, yeah. In Elvish. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, that, that scene always jumps out at me from this first movie in the trilogy because uh, the, the last scene between them. Yeah. The scene where, where Boromir is, is dying. Um, and they have right. a, they have a moment where, uh, you know, uh, Aragorn has sort of rubbed him the wrong way. He, he hasn't, he hasn't been accepted by the rest of mankind, I guess. Uh, and it sort of becomes a, a moment for both of them. One where it's, it's a, it's a moment where Aragorn is sort of realizing his, his call to action, his destiny, and and Boromir at the same time is going through a little bit of a of a character arc of his own as he's dying he's sort of get, regaining faith that he's lost in his in his own kind and it's just there's an emotional complexity to that that we you know that's not something that we see in fantasy sci-fi characters um it's it's something from a you know it's it's something from a uh a far artsier film and i think it's interesting Particularly in a movie like this, where uh, you know every, every scene is taken from a very, uh, very well developed uh, source material, I think it says a lot about Jackson. I think what he chose to put in the screenplay, and you know, obviously, a ton of things have to be omitted when you're making a, a film out of a book that big. And I think it's it, it's really interesting the scenes that he chose to. Uh, to film uh, from this work, and and I think particularly that one jumps out at me from this first movie as something of 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 a quality that we don't typically see in a film of this genre. Yeah, what, what's really interesting is is as I remember, uh, I've only read the first book, Fellowship of the Ring, um, which is one of the reasons I picked this film. Um, but Tolkien didn't really write like that at all. You know, he wasn't a very emotionally indulgent writer um he wrote you know a sentence or two maybe aragorn holds boromir as he dies i don't know i didn't read that part because it's not in the first book but for example uh you know aragorn holds boromir in his hands yada 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 they talk about their there might be like 17 pages of their lineage and how their language was (laughs) and what kind of what kind of biscuits they had for breakfast that morning and how delicious they were but it's not gonna really talk about it's not really going to indulge in those kind of character beats that you're that you're talking about. So it's really striking that Jackson does indulge in that, you know, and really takes time and really makes it a, a high priority to get across. Maybe maybe he saw that as a weakness of the books. Not saying it is. I don't want to get hate mail, but um, you know, maybe he saw that as a as a like. Like we're going to be on such a big platform, right? Well, look, uh, uh, certainly, maybe not a weakness of the book, but certainly a, a, a weakness when you're talking about translating that book to the screen is yeah, that yeah, you have good. to you have to create those moments. You have to look for uh, moments that did that did actually occur in the book and turn them into uh, important moments in these characters' story arcs. Yeah, yeah, you're right, and I think I think that's what makes him. Uh, you know, a good screenwriter is that instead of glossing over things like that and saying, "All right, where's the where's the dragons? I got to get to the dra- the dragons." Uh, instead of doing that, he said, "Okay, this is a little thing here that is a big emotional thing, even though it's you know, tech- like even on the surface it might not be." So, 
Yeah, I think I think it's a it's interesting decision making. Surely for for these kind of films, I think you're right. Um, I want to talk about the score from this movie. We don't often talk score on film nerds, but um, I think it's noteworthy it's, here. It's a surprise. Yeah, I think, uh, I think we're all kind of fans of uh, music. <laughs> well, I'm you know I certainly am not uh, someone that I would. I would not consider myself a real scholar of film scores. Um, I, I'm a little bit of a, of a populist when it comes to that in that, you know, I like the, the scores that stick with me. I like the scores that I can remember and, and whistle in the shower, you know, on a random <laughs> day. Uh, to, me, to me, those are uh, – certainly you can bring a lot of atmosphere and moodiness to a film with, a, with the right sort of subtle score. But uh, to me, the, the real classic scores – are are the ones you remember, you know, John Williams type scores, and I think, uh, arguably, the Lord of the Rings score uh, is probably one of the most memorable scores that we've gotten out of a, a, a film. You know, maybe in the last thirty years that didn't come from John Williams. It's big and it's got a lot of recognizable themes in it. And uh, you know, talk about this score a little bit, Ben, and what it does for the movie. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're right. I think uh, I think speaking in populist terms, I think it is one that you see the movie a second time and you hear the score and you're like, okay, okay, cool. And then you know, every time you think about the movie, you hear that. Or if somebody's if you whistle it, somebody in the room will say, oh, that's from Lord of the Rings. And you'll say, oh, well, yeah, um, <laughs> I know the score really well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think I think you're right. I, I remember, especially when it came out. Um, whenever it came out, uh, the year after, whenever I was getting ready for the two towers to come out, and I I picked up the score, uh, probably not through buying it. I can't remember, but um, I listened to the score a lot, and and I, it, I that's where I really kind of discovered it, and I was really like, wow, this is a this is really one of those memorable ones, like you said, and I think I think maybe. Uh, I think Hans Zimmer is the other, um, the other big kind of like memorable score guy. A lot of his sound kind of similar, but I think the only one that the only score from the last ten years or so that somebody might whistle and you could recognize is maybe the Pirates of the Caribbean score, um, which again sounds just a lot like a standard Hans Zimmer score. Parts of it, parts of it are brilliant. Best thing about the series, but that's a huge tangent. Um, but yeah, I think. <laughs> What the hell am I talking about? Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right that uh, that it is a big part of it. And it is it, again, it's a big part of that um, emotional indulgence that I was talking about in the high melodrama, because every character has his moment where the music swells and they have a big um, cathartic kind of speech, or it, uh, or they're whispering to each other while Enya is soothing us in the background, and it it all plays to that kind of melodrama. Um, and again, to bring back the Kenneth Branagh kind of parallels, it's the same kind of thing. Branagh, I don't know if you've seen his Hamlet. Um, it's it's pretty good, but it's the same kind of sweeping. Everything's moving, everything. And there's this Patrick Doyle score that, like, <laughs> I swear, every ten seconds there's this music cue that comes up, and it's like it makes you cry a little bit every time it comes up because it's really pretty. But it, I mean, honest to God, every every minute, and you're just like, oh, all right, Branagh bring it back just a little bit. And the same goes for his Henry, Henry V. And it's just this kind of linking 
it's I, I wouldn't compare it to opera, um, but it is the kind of linking music and that kind of emotional visual that I was talking about where he goes, Jackson goes for the shots that make you feel fuzzy in your stomach, you know, and linking that with the music that kind of makes you feel fuzzy in your stomach and really knows how to kind of package that the same way that, like you said, a John Williams uh, knows how to do. So, yeah, I think, I think it's really a, a, a good score. Um, I, I'm afraid that it's kind of, uh, I know Howard Shore is known for doing a lot of other, really good work, um, but I'm afraid the rest of his body of work has kind of gone neglected by now, you know? Yeah, this is this is most definitely what he's uh, what he's going to be remembered for, I think. Um, I want to I want to touch on one more aspect of this movie before we uh, before we close out. Um, And it's sort of a point of debate, I guess, um, that we could, you know, I think it's a little bit in the vein of the sort of uh, revamped. Star Wars uh, films that Lucas put out before the prequel trilogy. Uh, you know, Peter Jackson put out uh, a much publicized extended edition of this film and and the entire trilogy really on on DVD, uh, and it was considerably longer uh, than the theatrical cut. I know Fellowship of the Ring uh, extended edition is thirty minutes longer than the theatrical cut, and. You know, there are a few little frivolous items thrown in there, but there's actually some substantive material uh, in the extended edition that, you know, sort of adds to the characters and adds to their uh, emotional storylines. Uh, there's there's a lot of extra backstory given to the Aragorn and Arwen storyline, which is actually something that was uh, – it's a storyline that was criticized from the theatrical uh, releases, you know, that it was sort of underdeveloped and seemed to just kind of be thrown in there. Uh, the extended cut gives a little more meat to that. Um, you know, there's more backstory for uh, for Boromir. There's a there's a there's a much more detailed prologue um, that I think probably, you know, if you watch it, it, it explains a lot more. Especially if if you haven't read the book, it explains a lot more about uh, the world. Uh, of Middle Earth and sort of the the, the characters, uh, the various characters' backstory and how they got to be where they are. What are your What are your thoughts on on this? I don't know if you've seen the extended cut, but what are your thoughts on the sort of concept of doing that? And uh, do you do you believe in in the idea of a director's you know DVD release cut being a, a definitive version of the movie, or are you someone who who believes that? The way it went out in theaters is the way it should be. No, I think that's that's a ridiculous way to think. Um, no, I think uh, I, I I really like I really like it. I haven't seen the theatrical cut of Fellowship of the Ring since I was in the theater. When I watch it now, I watch the extended. And whenever they came out on the extended editions, that's that's what I bought. It wasn't it wasn't any question, you know, um, because unlike a lot of other movies uh, with with the director's cut. Um, which this series, I, I think, I think it did popularize it. You know, I think uh, Ridley Scott was like the kind of is kind of billed as the founder of the director's cut because he did it for Blade Runner, and I think it was used. You know, sometimes uh, between then, between the release of that and the release of Fellowship of the Ring, but I think for the most part, from a market standpoint, where um, you know the business side of filmmaking realized, oh, there's a lot of money to be made here. Is with Lord of the Rings when when they realize that okay, having an extended cut or a director's cut or a special edition cut is going to be a good idea. 
um, and is not going to be a slap in the face to the theatrical um, release. Uh, uh, but again, as we've talked about before with CGI and with the idea of the blockbuster, it kind of went off the rails, and it's kind of become kind of notorious, and now every single movie that gets a DVD release gets like the regular one, and then two weeks later, or two months later, three months later, you get the special edition cut with all these other scenes maybe added in, maybe not, but they're all scenes that you're like, okay, yeah, we know why those were cut, because they, they don't, you know, contribute to the story as well. You're, no, you especially see this a lot in, uh, I'm sorry for interrupting, you, you especially uh, see it, you see it a lot in comedy these days, it's almost yeah. really a marketing technique for DVD. Yeah, where it's, yeah. They add a, they'll add one like scene a with uh, with one with one breast out, and they'll say, it's the unrated edition. Exactly. Yeah, which they could not have nudity in that, and it'd still be unrated. They just don't have to submit it to the MPAA, and it's not rated, you know? Right. Uh, which is, it's just a it's just a slick marketing thing that hopefully, hope to God, people will stop falling for. Uh, it's one of those movie marketing tricks that just make me really sick. Like the based on the true story uh, <laughs> tag. Been, it, just makes, it just makes me furious. It makes me knock over shelves in my house because it just... Uh. But uh, going back to the DVD thing, I think I think it works for the, the, the Lord of the Rings films, although by the time the third movie came out, it was a kind of situation where when I went to go see it in the theater, I was like, okay, this is cool, but this is kind of like... Uh, uh, this is kind of like Christmas Eve, you know. This is kind of like getting my my stocking stuffer because I know later on I'm gonna get a big present, you know. Like I'll go through the motions, I'll go see the theatrical cut of the movie, but I know that in August they're gonna release the big one that's actually gonna have the real movie that I'm really gonna consider when I give it a grade. You know, I, I'm pretty sure 90% of the internet movie geeks at the time whenever Return of the King came out when they had their little Flickster review or whatever blurb about the movie I promise you 90% of them probably wrote something like I liked it but um, I think I think the extended cut is going to be really good you know and I think it's because they the the filmmakers and the, the marketing folks trained the audience to think that way it really think is- that okay the, the theatrical is is almost just a three-and-a-half-hour-long trailer <laughs> for the extended cut. It's uh, a really Trump. strange phenomenon, uh, you know, and I, yeah. I, I sort of – it's sort of uh, – I sort of forgot that, that they were releasing the extended edition DVDs before Return of the King was out. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Every year, the, the Fellowship extended cut was out before Two Towers. Right. And, and that's – I watched that a lot. You it know, got me into it's, uh It's just really uh, – it's really interesting to have a situation where uh, where people are. I, I can't think of another uh, of another time that that could have happened where people are going into a movie like that saying, uh, "I know there's I know there's a full and sort of more definitive version of this film that will be that will be released later." The other, the only other film I could think of, and it's not nearly on the big of, as big of a scale. I feel like we're missing something big, but uh, the, what I can think of is Kingdom of Heaven, um, which, but it wasn't as publicized and it wasn't as popular thought when going in. Also, a fraction of the people that wanted to see Lord of the Rings actually wanted to see <laughs> Kingdom of Heaven. I think, but, I think uh, uh, for people that knew at the time, you know, I don't know how much people kept up with production news. Yeah, but, not very much. But, very you know, at the, at the time... Uh, at the time that Brazil 
was released. That that's another film oh, that yeah. I think I think it was sort of as well publicized as anything was back then. That it, that Terry Gilliam was not happy oh, with, really? with the cut and what was done to the film before it was released in theaters. Um, but you know, again, like you said, these are these are movies that were uh, sort of obscure and and not not anything on the level of of Return of the King. Right, where everybody going in it, you know, people were having conversations about it in line in, you know, middle America. Um, but uh, but going back to your, one of your other questions was that about kind of my idea of it and what, what I think about the whole thing is I think, I don't think, I think it's overall kind of a bad thing, you know, because it does marginalize the importance of theatrical releases. And it has shortened, I mean, as the, the, the window between theatrical and DVD release continues to shorten. It, that's one of the reasons, you know, because people aren't going to movies enough because sometimes they think, well, you know, in, in two months I'm going to have a DVD and it's going to have the actual movie on it, so why would I want to go see what's in the theaters? But I think, uh, but I don't think it's a blanket statement. I don't think you can make a blanket statement that every director's cut DVD is a hack marketing, you know, ploy to make more money. Um, because with that Kingdom of Heaven example, the theatrical movie was okay. But I don't know if you've seen the director's cut. I, have, the, I uh, haven't seen – I'll be honest with you, Stark. I haven't seen any any yeah, form or version of Kingdom of Heaven. It's it's great. Like the – especially the, the director – I mean the, the other one, there's no especially about it. The, the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven is great. Even, I mean it's Orlando Bloom's best work that he's ever done. <laughs> uh, it, it, will, it will go a little bit in the direction of, of changing your perspective on it, although – he isn't as strong of a lead as somebody else. I, I think like Eric Bana may have been a better choice for the lead in that. But whatever the case may be, it's an extremely good and strong movie. And it's so much more different and better and complex than theatrical cut. You can tell that whenever they, the studio, Fox, which these days, by the way, Fox is notorious for mishandling um, these kind of releases. But um, the... Whenever you can tell the executives saw the cut of Kingdom of Heaven, and were like, "Man, it's not going to make Lord of the Rings money, especially because it's so long." So let's cut it out. And uh, they didn't realize that it's not Lord of the Rings. It's not at all that kind of a movie. It's a lot more of a. It's a more of a medit- more of a meditative. It's not an action movie by any means, and that's what they were hoping for. Um, but William Monaghan didn't write an action movie, and Ridley Scott didn't shoot an action movie. That said, there's great battle scenes. Anyway, this just became like a really disturbing commercial for the Kingdom of Heaven director's <laughs> cut, available on Amazon.com. But no, I think I think it's I think in some cases it works, some cases it doesn't. So, but I do think it, Lord of the Rings extended cuts really popularized it and brought it to the mainstream uh, to potential ill effect. All right. Well, that's I, all I got. I'm not going to start talking about DVD. That's okay. Cut. No, I I think we'll I think we'll wrap it up there and. Uh, we will uh, we will talk to you guys again next time when we discuss. Uh, you, you sound exhausted at at the diatribe that I just went on. I'm not. You, you no. sound like physically. I was trying to give myself some spaces so that I could so that I could cut around it. But but okay. now, now now I'm leaving this in. I'm leaving this part in. <laughs> no, this is funny. <laughs> Anyways, we our our next podcast and and the the final podcast in this series. Uh, we will give Ben Stark a chance to comment on The Dark Knight, a film that uh, our, uh, some of our other contributors have already uh, spoken about in our, uh, our roundtable podcast that we did on The Dark Knight. But we will give uh, Ben Stark his chance to make his voice heard on uh, 
what is it now, the second highest grossing movie of all time in America? Yeah. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm sad. I, that, that was a big disappointment that I missed that round table. Because uh, <laughs> I, think, I think we're still shooting. When that was my life, it was in utter turmoil. We just so. missed you. So, but, but, uh, but you'll get your, you'll get your time uh, up on the stand here. And uh, so, so join us for that. And uh, thanks again for doing this with us, Ben. Thank you. Thank you.